Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host and decolonized wellness and body image coach, Dahlia Kinsey. I help queer folks of color heal their struggles with shame, self-acceptance through nutrition and self-care so they can live the most fierce, liberated, and joyful version of their lives. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm really excited to share today's interview with you. My guest, Ian, is a journalist, is a queer person who is active on social media, sharing what's actually going on in his part of the world. So many times we know that other people's agendas affect the way the news is reported and what is reported on. So it's so exciting to see the gatekeepers losing their influence and more and more people creating content in an independent way. During this interview, Ian touches on the idea that some of us folks of color, queer folks, get attached to the idea of being accepted by institutions that historically have rejected us. And thinking about shifting that emphasis that we have on those institutions to having platforms that belong to us and addressing the needs of our community and also creating the content that we needed in the past or that we want to see now understanding that so many other people have been looking for the same thing. This is a great conversation. In addition to Ian's background and current work in journalism, he shares a fascinating story of self-acceptance as a multi-ethnic person living in the United States in white-dominated spaces and learning to manage the stress of living with anti-Asian sentiment and fully accepting yourself without waiting for the world around you to give you permission to take up space and to love yourself. Let's jump right in. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Okay, perfect. So just to get started, can you share your marginalized identities? Of course. So I am half Chinese, half Mexican, and queer. Okay, excellent. That's an exciting (laughs) combination. (laughs) So I came across you on TikTok. You're producing a lot of content that we just don't see anyplace else. At least I don't here in the South. And I live with someone who watches a lot of Fox News. That's a whole nother story. So I get a lot of my news 
from TikTok, honestly. And it's interesting that there are some people there who maybe aren't as clearly reputable as you are. So it's awesome to come across someone who is a person of color, who is LGBTQ, and who's bringing us news. So how long have you been on TikTok? I've actually only been on TikTok for about two months now. I started with an intro video of myself and how my writing career sort of started because even though I had the immense privilege of going to NYU and going to university to study journalism, there was even within the department and within the institution a lot of gatekeeping to the point where I would see, for example, my white professors take to other white students and sort of like take the time to mentor them. And while a lot of professors would compliment my writing, I never felt like anyone really was rooting for me or was really helping me find those internships. So I actually didn't know how important internships were until after I graduated. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a lot of those connections that a lot of my peers who did graduate from the same program as me did. So I was just super panicked. I was like, oh my God, what did I do for the past four years? I was just focused on getting good grades because that's what my immigrant parents taught me to do. Right. <laughs> that's what most of us have heard, especially if your parents didn't go to college. That's the only information we've had presented to us. I really only heard after graduation that networking is really the biggest leg up that people generally get when they go to school. But that's probably not your experience, just like you saw. If you're a person of color, that one, nobody told you that that's what you're supposed to be doing. And if people don't want to connect with you, if they see your work and they like you, but still, for some reason, it doesn't occur to them to attempt to form a relationship with you. I mean, that is the story of our lives. People thinking that we're extras or we belong in the background, we're not the person you take under your wing or form a friendship with. Exactly. And, and I think that is the big misconception too of going to school and getting a degree that doesn't really necessarily guarantee that you're going to get the attention and the mentorship that maybe you think you're going to get, especially as a person of color. So what I did after I graduated was I was so desperate because I wasn't getting any jobs. So I just wrote my own essays like just sat in in my room, the pandemic had started. So I just wrote and just sent it over directly to the New York Times, the Washington Post, all these big publications. And I didn't really expect to hear back, but I think my writing spoke for itself. And then I started getting published in those outlets, which sort of led to the beginning of, of my career now. But it was super the opposite of what other kids are taught to do. I don't think it's like, necessarily like the standard etiquette to just be like a random person sending essays but that's the only like way in that I saw was like okay maybe they're not taking me in when they see my application when they see my face when they see my name maybe if it's just completely undeniable I write this down and I send it to them and it's good and they can't say no to me that was my only way in and so my first TikTok that I made was sort of like telling people that this is how I started getting published. Like it wasn't from internships. It wasn't from this. It was from sitting down, doing the work and sending it. (laughs) I love that though. That's so exciting. And so you are mentoring other people of color 
through the content that you're posting. So maybe we can't all expect to be mentored in the institutions that we're in, which is very frustrating when you pay to be there, just like everybody else. You may not get the same experience or the same level of benefit, but you can mentor others by doing what you're doing. That, that's really exciting to see and to know that, to see that modeled for everybody that maybe nobody else is going to tell you this, but I can tell you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this is something a lot of people understand, but I think it's a lot of times we get really discouraged and we think there's absolutely no way in. But unfortunately, because of being people of color, we have to be, you know, like that old quote, like twice as good, twice as hardworking. And it's very frustrating, but I think at the same time, it's very important to try to find a way to overcome it because they'll keep us down. <laughs> it, it, like, it, unless we do stuff like that, I, I think I, I would have easily, could have easily gone into a whole other field thinking that it was never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I can see that being super discouraging. It, it's interesting. So you're Gen Z. Yeah, I think I'm like the year the cutoff date. You're right on the cusp. I'm, I'm that way with the Gen Xers. But you know who you are. We're going to stick to the label that you know resonates with you. It's been so fascinating to see the work environment or the economic environment that Gen Z has had to come up in. Totally different from what I saw when I got out of high school. Jobs were everywhere, right? You could quit them at the drop of a dime, which I did all the time because there was always another one. I remember quitting a job because I wanted to go see Lord of the Rings on the day that it came out. And they said that they couldn't give me that day off. And I was just like, okay, well, bye. <laughs> That's how seriously I did not take work. But seeing how the economy has shifted and seeing adults competing for jobs that in the past were pretty much for teenagers, it's hard to get an entry-level job. It's hard to get a job at the mall. It's very, very different. So I know a lot of people who've graduated and not been able to find anything in their area of study because people are not leaving positions and moving around like they used to. So it's time for innovation. And it's a great time to tap into that tradition that we have as people of color of innovating and finding a way where it looks like there isn't a way and creating your own path. But it can be very scary. So did your parents model that for you? Tell us about your childhood. Where were you raised? Yeah, so I, that's actually like a super good question because I do think that my parents modeled that for me. My mom, she was born in China, maybe like at the tail end of communism. So when she was born, there was still like Mao people in China weren't allowed to leave the country, but she was always fascinated by the outside world. And so she studied Spanish because she thought it was like the most exotic thing she could think of. Oh, that's uh, so cool. <laughs> and so she studied Latin American history in China and literature. And when she graduated, she spoke fluent Spanish. So she was like, you know, I really want to try to leave. So through a government program, she was able to go to Mexico as a translator. But she was only supposed to be there for a year. <laughs> but she sort of like, you know, knocked out. We're good. And she met my dad, who's Mexican. Yeah, and I, I was raised in Mexico City. So I think 
definitely, at least from my mom's side, just like that sense of the world, you know, if this world doesn't fit you, then you go create your own and you sort of find ways that you can be still be your authentic self and still accomplish what you want, but in an environment that's going to let you thrive and appreciate you and the work that you do. So for me, I guess that's kind of like TikTok, right? It's kind of like, if I don't get recognition from editors at these top publications, like I'm just going to go to TikTok and talk about my stories and the, what my reporting, and that's really resonates with, with people. And I feel really good in that space because of that. Yeah. Uh Wow. She went way outside of the box. (laughs) Like definitely nobody had showed her that that was a path she could take. That's fascinating though, because I, I meet so many people who will ask me to speak for all marginalized people and explain to them, like, why isn't this group doing well? Like, why? And there are a million reasons, right? But one of the major barriers is learned helplessness. And that's certainly not the fault of the people who are experiencing that. But it's something that we all need to be aware of, Mm -hmm. that it can look like there's no way out of a situation. But there are many times when the rules that we think apply are totally optional, right? Like most people probably thought you just have to stay in China because that's absolutely what the story was like <laughs> just a few years earlier, right? And you can't go to Mexico. That, it just seems so far apart. Mm-hmm. However, I know as I travel, Chinese people live everywhere, everywhere. So like if you go to the Grand Canyon, there will be plenty of Chinese people there. Mm-hmm. If you go to the Eiffel Tower, there will be plenty of Chinese people there. <laughs> they definitely do their traveling and get around. But totally uprooting and moving to another country, I still think it's for a special kind of person. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, too, that... And I think this is something maybe we're realizing more as people of color in this country that, you know, I think sometimes we're married to these ideas and this is why it becomes so difficult to even imagine anything outside of it. So like the idea of, for example, for me as a writer, like the New York Times is like the top and it's like where I want to be. But I think there's also this power that we have that we could have to not idealize necessarily these institutions that have, haven't let us in, but to mm. either create our own or like look for the outlets that will accept us for who we are without having to change every part of how we interact with people, how we speak, the way we write. So I think even that, I think, is a a huge privilege. I think the biggest privilege I have is that because my parents come from two very different cultures, they always taught me not to marry myself to one idea of how to do things or like one institution or one single country. And I think that has allowed me to see, you know, TikTok is not the New York Times, but I might be influencing more people on TikTok right now than I would as a writer in the New York Times. So I think it's all of that reshaping how, which ideas we're married to and what we think our lives has to look like, I think is also one of the biggest powers that that we could have as marginalized people. Yeah, that's huge. And when you talk about having to change the way you present yourself and the way that you write, have you come across pressure to code switch Mm -hmm. in your work now as a freelancer? Yeah, uh, 
because Spanish is my first language, sometimes I write very long run-on sentences because that's how you speak in Spanish. And I always get, by editors, I always get edited down because of that and told that it's like too confusing or it's too uh, wordy. But for me, that's like my style. It's not, for me, it's not grammatically incorrect. It's just the way I, I write and express myself. So sort of like, yeah, like little stuff like that for sure is something that I ha- I've had, had to change in my writing. And how did you even identify that that comes from Spanish being your first language? Because sometimes when people keep telling you that something you're doing is wrong, your first inclination is to think like, oh, I'm, I missed a rule or something. Not to realize this is their preference because they only speak English. Mm-hmm. I think I noticed when I had my first editor who was also bilingual and she compliments in my writing really like a lot and she was like wow it's just like it flows it feels like you know like I'm listening to a friend speak and it's like beautiful and there was the first time an editor had ever told me that about how long my sentences were wow. so it kind of for me and I was like oh, okay so this is because the the other editors their only template is English and their only in terms of culture they only know American culture so everything else outside of that is not a legitimate way to speak or write or express yourself. Oh my goodness. That is such a big concept. <laughs> well, it, wow. And that you needed another dual culture kid to explain that or to reflect that back to you. Mm-hmm. That's so important. So when it comes to seeking out connection with other people with similar shared experiences, what has that been like for you? Because I know that can be very complicated for people who are multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. I think it's been such a challenge. Yeah, I, I think I've always faced rejection from, I guess, both sides of my culture. But I think I've found a lot of community just in the past years of young people in general. Creating these movements and sort of creating language to express why we feel the way that we do, even like within the queer community, all the racism, the fetishization, just the fact that now we're talking about it makes me feel like I belong much more than I used to when I didn't even have the language to, to even understand what was going on. So I think social media, even though I have a very complicated relationship to it, I think even that just has, has given us so much language that we wouldn't have otherwise, I think. Speak to the complicated relationship with social media because I have a love-hate relationship with TikTok. (laughs) And in the early stages, in the honeymoon phase, it was all love, right? It was so fresh, so young. And my feed was so super queer that I was like, I was in heaven. And then extremely talented content creators of color started mentioning how they weren't getting any traction and they're being suppressed. And sometimes I kind of feel like an asshole for even still being on it so much, but I'm like, but the content I want is there, but we're not getting equal treatment. How, how do you reconcile that? And really, when you say your relationship with social media is complicated, what do you mean? Yeah, I, I think that resonates a lot. It's kind of like that concept of I'm used to like loving something that doesn't love me. <laughs> and I think 
I think it started weighing down on me at first, like the pressure of social media when I was like, oh, um, I'm getting so many followers all of a sudden. This was like my first big wave of people following me and a video doing really well. And that's when I started getting anxious and started having all these like doubts of like, oh, I'm not an influencer. Like I, no one who like makes TikToks that I've seen like looks like me. Like what, what am I going to do? What are all these people want, going to want to see from me? And I just got really this, but I think, I think I'm very dedicated to not hazing myself in the way that society already is and already has done. <laughs> so I'm always very, I make sure to be like, now, whenever I make a TikTok, I exit out of the app and I don't go on it for like two days because I, it's too much suffering to be like checking back. Oh, like this video didn't do well. Like people are saying like bad things about me or commenting terrible things. Like I don't want to do, I don't want that to sway or prevent me from creating more TikToks in the future. So I just sort of like dip out <laughs> for a couple of days. And that's been served me, that's served me super well because now the re it's not the reason I post anymore is not to get all these likes and acknowledgement. It's just like, it makes me feel good about myself that like, wow, like despite my own anxiety and despite my own doubts about myself, I was able to post something. And I think that's really when I create my best content too, because I'm being the most genuine. That answered the question. Yes, yes. That's, and that's excellent advice to create that gap and to work on your attachment to the response and for your motivation to be something that isn't influenced by other people's responses. Mm. It is still hard to get used to feeling like everybody's looking at you. How did you, did you have any barriers with that? Or were you able to get comfortable with that pretty quickly? Feeling like, eh, everybody's looking at me. No, no, I'm, I'm still very uncomfortable with it. <laughs> uh, I think it's just, I think I've always underestimated how much like not seeing myself represented on media in media or TV affected me. And I still have this very complicated relationship with my appearance. So a part of it is also like when I look back, I'm like, oh, like I I'm super self-critical. So my natural instinct is always like I should delete this or I should make this private. But I think having a larger purpose when I post what I'm posting, like informing people about something that they wouldn't have heard otherwise, helping promote a cause for a queer person or person of color. For me, that is, I think it's so important to have a larger purpose outside of yourself, because if you don't, I think it's very easy to just like cave in, especially if a lot of people are criticizing you or disagreeing with you. It's super mm -hmm. easy to just be tempted to delete it because you can like, you don't have to be on social media. You don't have to create anything. It's so much easier to just like delete everything. but. I think that's why having a purpose is super, super important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to dealing with the people who disagree with you or want to be hostile, how do you navigate how much you interact or do you not at all once you get to a certain point? Because that would be a lot of interactions to navigate. Yeah, I think I always ask myself where the criticism is coming from and I think you can tell when it's constructive, when the person's like, hey, this was a, a little offensive to me, this like term you use for this particular issue. And I can recognize that as feedback. So for people like that, I usually like and comment. 
but there's other people who, when they used to like want to be journalists or like, just like anything that's a direct attack on myself and my work. And it's obviously meant to dissuade me from doing things. I really try to ignore those, even though sometimes <laughs> I'm not the bigger person and, and do respond, but for the most Well, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know. I feel like sometimes you have to be petty. Like we can't 100% <laughs> not be petty, right? Yeah. And sometimes you just, I don't know, it's like a little itch that you have to scratch. Exactly. Exactly. Can't be resisted. Exactly. And I think too, um, I, I also think about the person that's giving me those critiques and I'll usually go to their profiles and it's usually like they don't have a profile picture. They haven't created anything. So for me, that automatically reduces their credibility because it's sort of like anyone can criticize anything. And the same people who are the most critical, I think, are often the ones who are frustrated because they don't know how to create their own space or and I sympathize with that and it's something that I went through as well of just being resentful that I, I saw other people thriving and, and succeeding and I didn't know where to find my own space but yeah I, I think when they start like insulting me I have a little less sympathy. <laughs> yeah I know okay that makes that totally resonates now you mentioned that you had uh, you were working through your relationship with your own appearance, and that's always interesting to hear to me anyway from cis men because traditionally, or at least what has been presented to us through dominant media, is that only cis women are concerned about their appearance because beauty is like your access to power. And that men don't care. Men just do whatever they want. And they know that their value extends far beyond their physical being. What has your experience been, your real life experience with the importance of your physical appearance as a cis man? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And it's something I think about a lot. And I wonder if a big part of that is because of my queerness and, and being gay and being in, in these spaces with other men who are also very objectifying of others. Because I know a lot of queer men who have really, really serious body image issues. And I think part of it is just the way that, that we build our whole identity around, I guess, our, how attractive we are and our whole value lies on whether we're desirable to other men. And I think that's just created this culture where people become super hyper-specific about their type, mm. even extending to like not only height and weight and how much body care, but even like race. And there's people who exclusively date Asian people. They're called like rice queens. And there's like, it's just like, it gets so ridiculous how specific. That sounds horrible. Are. That sounds <laughs> horrible. I learned about that not long ago. <laughs> Would you date anyone who self-identifies that way? That sounds, that would creep me out. Yes. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because it, it's, it's that thing where like, I wouldn't be able to stop being so aware of my own body and my own presence if I knew I was dating someone for who them, my aesthetic as an Asian person was what they found most valuable. Um, yeah, I think that would definitely make me super uncomfortable. And there's people who have approached me and said that, that they're rice queens. And 
just like what <laughs> what do we do with that kind of person because that's a special kind of I don't know what do we even call that it feels just like another brand of racism where you're not allowed to just be yourself you know the way you can just totally relax mm-hmm. when you're around other people of color who are also queer like we need all these levels right and you feel like I'm in a space where I can just be myself. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, the type of comfort you need with a romantic partner, even mm-hmm. with a hookup, honestly. So you can fully be present in your body and just be yourself. But what? how do you explain to people who are trying to say, oh, but I love you. So it's not bad. How is this a negative? Mm-hmm. And they're not understanding that that kind of racialized obsession is not okay for most of us and i question the people who are like oh really you're rice queen let's go out (laughs) i question (laughs) their mental health right honestly like have you really gotten the help that you need to understand how inappropriate that is Mm -hmm. i i think i think it's so tricky coming to that realization partly because i at least felt so and this is like a very like funny thing to say now but i felt grateful that people anyone it didn't matter who would be paying attention to me when i felt for so long that asian men were weak and meek and like we didn't have any sexual appeal at all so when someone walks up to you and says wow i'm obsessed with asians your first my first inclination was to be like oh thank you (laughs) you know like which is so horrible to say but i think the more I realized my own value in POC spaces, because I really had to get away from the objectification of a lot of white men. Once I was able to define myself on my own terms, I was no longer vulnerable to that because it is, but it does take a lot of unlearning because of course, if if you're queer and your family doesn't necessarily accept you fully and you feel very alone and then you go to the queer community and there's a lot of people who don't, don't even want to entertain any sort of relationship with you because of your race. And then someone comes and tells you they're obsessed with you because of your race. It's yeah. Like I have a lot of sympathy and a lot of just a lot of sadness for people who really end up in long-term relationships like that, because it's not, it's not comfortable either for, for them. That is That's really deep. And thank you for sharing that. That makes so much sense through that lens. And it's interesting because I think to a large extent, this may be a uniquely Asian male experience because Asian women are hypersexualized. So I can't imagine any Asian woman being grateful if somebody comes up to her and says, I'm obsessed with Asian women, she will be like, "Uh uh-huh. And who isn't like, but yeah, that is so interesting. I see research that on a lot of dating sites, the people who get the least amount of interaction are Asian men, but right. The tie though was black women. (laughs) So even though I think black women are often hypersexualized as well, the concept of a long-term romantic relationship with Black women really is just not popular in the mainstream because the way people paint Black women as so aggressive or whatever, which I think is, oh, what you're seeing is trauma being manifest. 
but it's very precarious, a position that feeling unlovable puts you in and the type of scraps it'll make you accept. And when everywhere we look, the ideal, like our hero, head of the family, hot guy is always a white male. When in real life, a white male gives you approval and says, oh, I can see you as someone who's worthy of love. That is the knee-jerk reaction. It's like, oh, gratitude. Mm-hmm. But to look back, it, it, I feel sad for myself because I can relate to that. And I had a guest on who said a friend came and said, you need to stop being a slave to white dick. That's <laughs> In hindsight, yeah, it was a real thing. But these are all natural responses to the ways that we've been programmed. Mm-hmm. But it does feel embarrassing somehow to admit like, oh, I turned this stigma in on myself when it was never mine. I think that extends to everything, like even like professionally, like we were talking about earlier and to our romantic relationships. And I think that's why I think it's so, so, so important to just first before like anything else to just have a strong sense of who you are. And even when when people project things onto you to just double down on like, no, like this is, I already went through this. I already know who I am. Because it's so easy to relapse sometimes, I think, still. Um, because it's so deeply ingrained. And I don't know if our generations are like fully going to be able to get over that as, as people of color. I want to believe yes, but probably not, right? It took so long for us to get to this point. When you say it's important to not lose that, to stay grounded, to double down, is there anything that you've done or found that helps you do that? And how do you identify when you need to do that? I think that's a really good question. I I think because I've never been able to fit into a very tight mold, I've learned to really embrace the it is like cheesy but like the uniqueness and the fact that i'm not not ever going to be like anyone and i'm not ever going to be a conventional person in conventional spaces because those spaces don't have room for me Um, and so i think once i began to accept that and understand that everything i'm ever going to do is going to be unique and it's going to be different because of who i am that's when i really started like thriving and actually attracting a lot of that attention that I used to crave so much, except now I'm not craving it so much and I'm, I'm being so much more authentic. And I think as people of color, we often believe that we we're not going to be happy or successful or good enough until we achieve this idea of who we think we're going to be. But I think if you're really like doubled down on the fact that you're different and that you're unique and you're not going to, follow the same trajectory as a white person who goes straight from college to a job to a CEO position. I think acknowledging that and even embracing it and saying that's actually really amazing because I get to create something that no one's ever done before. I think that's when you really start to see really great things happening because I think as long as we keep chasing the spaces and the positions that we're never going to really be able to thrive in any way, the more miserable we're going to be. 
Tired of being at odds with your body? Sick of diets and weight cycling that make you feel like trash? Would you like to finally make peace with food so that you can focus on what your actual purpose in life is? What would your life look like if you trusted your intuition and let your true desires guide your actions? This episode is brought to you by the Mastering Intuitive Eating and Self-Trust Total Transformation Package. This is the program for you if you're ready to heal your relationship with food once and for all. This isn't another generic bod pause coaching program. This program is centered on liberation. Together, we'll free you from chronic dieting, poor self-image, and self-doubt. Nutrition is a tool that we use to reconnect to your inner wisdom and your sense of self-worth. This three-month coaching program will give you the sustainable results you've been looking for. By the end of our time together, you'll have a firm grasp on intuitive eating. You'll be at peace with your body and aligned with your purpose and your true desires. If that sounds good to you, just visit daliakinsey.com coaching. It sounds so scary, the concept of accepting that there's just one of you. It's interesting because as teenagers, that seems to be what everybody wants is to show how distinct they are from everyone else. But at the same time, they want to be unique as a herd. Like nobody wants to be unique all by themselves. (laughs) And it does feel like that, that fear of being separated and standing alone carries or follows us into adulthood. When you accepted that your lived experience is unique to you. And so if you speak through your lens, you're one of a kind and people will be drawn to you. Did it, did you have to grieve the loss of thinking that you were going to somehow assimilate or shove yourself into some kind of white box or what was that like for you? Yeah, I think strangely enough, my whole life as a kid, even not realizing was the process of grieving. I think just the accumulation of those little moments of being, uh, you know, told by kids, like, I don't want to play with you or being told by a girl, even though I'm prompted, obviously, that I'm not into Asians, like little stuff like that. I'm, wait a minute. Like you're just living your life, minding your business and someone brings it up in conversation and you literally didn't ask them anything. It was a white girl at an NYU party. So. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. This is after you already knew you were queer. Yes, yes. Like okay, I that's a whole nother layer. Obviously, I'm not like hitting any girl up. So just like it was very much unprompted. But wow. yeah, just like that that process I think just happened all throughout um my life. And it still happens, but the difference is that now I have this sense of self that I didn't before that I realized that all of those comments, all of those statements were able to hurt me so much because I didn't have a strong sense of who I could become. Didn't even have an idea of someone who was like me, but I think because it was so hard for me to see that I had to create something, an idea of myself that was completely apart from all of that. So, yeah, I think to answer the question, I think the grieving happened all throughout my life and it it was subtle, but I think looking back, I can recognize all of those moments of just having that pit in my stomach when people said stuff like that, or like that pit in my stomach, realizing, you know, that the professors are really, you know, rooting for me 
those were all the moments of grieving. But I think now I can move past that because if I don't, I'm just going to be stuck, you know? Right. I want to be stuck. When did you leave Mexico City? I left when I was seven. So I got to Texas and started second grade. Gotcha. So Texas also is a very, there's a high Mexican population in Texas. Mm -hmm. Were people recognizing you as a part of the community when you were in school? Yeah, there weren't as many Mexicans where I was. I was a little bit like Dallas area. So it was, I was in a suburb that was very white. But even, even with the Hispanic people, a lot of them, when I spoke Spanish, would laugh. They'd be like, oh, like a Chinese person speaking Spanish. So that <laughs> was an, on like other moments of like chipping away at my sense of self. Uh, because I, I, would, I, I just felt like I'm a regular Mexican. And to right. be, be denied that and have to remold this identity. I also wasn't Asian American because I wasn't American and I didn't speak Chinese. So, oh yeah, a lot of, a lot of crises in terms of identity. <laughs> it is, it's crazy that it, it feels like it's only happening to you because we never hear these stories, but there's so many people who come from multi-ethnic households that favor one parent more than the other, according to everybody else, right? <laughs> and people don't allow you to fully experience both sides of your, your culture, really. People don't want to allow you to fully engage. And I've visited Mexico lots of times, and Mexico's freaking huge and very diverse. So I don't understand why the minute people leave Mexico, they think all Mexicans look the same. I'm like, have you forgot about all the redheads, all the blondes, all the Black Mexicans, right? They don't exist in the mind of like the public. The minute people get outside of Mexico, they think everybody looks the same. Like they have Spanish ancestry and indigenous ancestry and that's it. Mm -hmm. And this is not, that's not at all accurate. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely just these ideas that people have so that they can feel comfortable with other people's identities. So I think mm -hmm. People have to simplify it so they can make sense of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And I know from an evolutionary perspective, your mind is always looking for simplicity, right? But I think thinking people should be able to embrace that nothing is that simple and binary thinking leaves out so many people. I want to say most of the planet, if people fully embrace all of their identities. But typically people are pushed to just pick one, whatever it is, just pick one. So yeah, that must have been a very isolating experience, constantly having people tell you, no, you haven't found your community yet, even though you know that you belong, but not enough for them. Mm -hmm. And I think part of of the whole thing was me thinking that I had to fit that mold as well. And I think that's where all the suffering came in was because 
I wasn't going to fit. I understood why I wasn't going to fit because there weren't a lot of Chinese Mexican people who were immigrants. And I think I only stopped suffering once I was able to stop desiring all of these molds and stop trying to chase all of these molds. And has it bothered you that you didn't get to learn Chinese as a kid? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think my mom always put us in Chinese school, but it wasn't cool to learn Chinese. I think the only people who got praised for learning Chinese were the white people. Mm. You're like, oh my God, you speak Chinese. But as a Chinese person to go into the school and learn a language that I was made fun of because of my appearance for being Chinese and to go into school to learn a language that was going to make me even more Chinese. For me, that had like a lot of implications, emotional, social. So it was, I, I resisted it, to be honest. It, I don't think it was so much that my mom didn't try as much as it was like I didn't want to absorb it. Mm. It was going to stigmatize me more in my, in, from my perspective. Right. Do you think there's a way to walk a child through that? Or it's basically impossible because of how much negative reinforcement the child's getting. There's no way to talk them out of the reality of their life. Like you knew that you were being stigmatized for looking Chinese. I, I think like immersing that child in that culture that they may, may, may be embarrassed or hesitant about. Because I think once I learned about Chinese artists and Chinese musicians and Chinese activists, I was like, oh shit, like there's actually a lot of Chinese people who are super cool and doing like super dope stuff. So I want to learn that language because it's going to make me cool. I think as a child, you think in like really simplistic terms. And if you think something's cool and something's like desirable, you're going to be much more encouraged to do it. But I definitely didn't grow up around images of cool Chinese people. So Yeah. Yeah. And then still like the anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. It's unrelenting and it's been this way for so, so, so long that I wonder if kids born this year will have that same experience of not wanting to learn Chinese and only wanting to speak English because of all of the racism. I think that's that's super real. Yeah. Ugh, that's just, it's very disappointing. Now, when it comes to the experience of being queer as a Chinese and Mexican person, how did your families respond or the families, both sides of the family? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think my extended family necessarily knows, but my parents, they were, I think at that point I was so, my mental health was so fragile that I came out on accident because my dad asked me because he was worried about me because I'd stopped like talking to them. I was very disconnected. So my dad actually called and he asked me like straight up, like if I was gay and then he was like, okay, like we can figure it out. We can like work through it. But at the end of the day, he told me that for him, the most important thing was that I was okay. So that experience I think was, was much more positive, I think, than a lot of people. But my parents were definitely, it definitely got to a point where my life, my mental health was at stake. So my parents, I think they realized that. And so that's why they showed up. But 
I think if it was up to me, I probably wouldn't have come out then. I, it probably would have taken me like many more years. So I'm actually grateful to my dad for that because I couldn't have done it for that much longer. And did it make you, did you feel an immediate sense of relief mm-hmm. knowing that your identity was clear to your parents? It's interesting yeah. that they knew to ask, which basically tells you they already knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess they were waiting for you to tell them. Yeah, it was such a relief because to me, we moved around a lot and being from two different cultures, like my core family was like the only people I had for most of my life. And so when I was figuring out my sexuality, it was the loneliest I've ever been because I couldn't even turn to them to like talk about that. So it was just like, I got to a point where I literally couldn't be genuine or truthful to anyone. And I think that's what really broke me. So when I was able to finally tell my parents it was like okay at least I still have these people but yeah for a while it it really I really couldn't talk to anyone like I had to lie all the time I felt Mm. and that was super super exhausting yeah yeah I I can imagine and it's heartbreaking to know that so many people are still under that level of stress Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah Now, when you talked about body image and how really complicated body image is in the gay cis male community, now you're working on doing some creative work around that. What, tell us about that project. Yeah. So I'm actually working on a memoir about literally everything we talked about now, just about body image and being in these queer spaces and how being so aware of my body and my presence everywhere I went really distorted my sense of self and it prevented me from really fulfilling myself as just like a human being. It took me so long to try to even think about the basic necessities of like dating where like all my peers in middle school, high school were figuring that out. I was like two, three years into college before I even saw myself as having a romantic relationship. So just how all of these little moments and these little things really add up to something that's really enormous and really I think it's takes the rest of your life really to try to figure out how all of those things affected you yeah I I'm I think the book is sort of the process of me trying to understand that how did I come to a place where you know sometimes I avoid the mirror for days because I don't want to spiral down this rabbit hole of self-loathing how did I get to this place when I'm like a cis male who's 20, turning 24, you know, it's like, I don't think that's any, any story that I ever saw. I really want to, yeah, just, just tell that, that story. Now, have you had to do a lot of healing work around food and body image or was it totally separate from weight, really more about ethnicity and how you present and how people were treating you exactly yeah so for me it was more just basically like face like racial stuff it was it got to the point where like I would hide my face with like a baseball cap and sunglasses so like um people couldn't tell I was Asian because I was just so exhausted um even like in New York in the train like one day I was in the train and I saw the like a lady counting all the Asians inside and she like kept going like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And for me, I was like, little stuff like that 
became so oh, that's so weird through my like mental health that I would literally on the train hide my face because I couldn't take it anymore. Like I I just couldn't function. So it got to that point. So it was around my race for the most part. And I went to therapy during my time in school and she diagnosed me with body dysmorphia. And so I think getting that diagnosis has helped me a lot in just understanding how irrational it really is and try to, yeah, just, just try to tackle it from that perspective as opposed to like, oh, there's something so horribly wrong with my face or like I'm disfigured in some way because people keep pointing out my race or how I look. Oh, see, I've never heard body dysmorphia used in that way. So it's really, even in that context, was about how you perceived your own face, not the rest of your body. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it's so interesting because we live in a country where everything is centered on the care of white folks, Mm -hmm. that it seems like there should be a more nuanced term for that. But of course, there wouldn't be because how many people are actually getting mental health services who are with a practitioner who's with it enough to recognize like, oh, this is that same condition we've recognized in other areas, but it's like a racialized body disorder. Yeah, that's so true. My, my therapist was white. And when you say that, it really resonates because I remember her telling me like, wow, a lot of my patients of color also have like body dysmorphia. And then when she said that, like exactly what you said, like something clicked, I was like, oh, so it's like, it's not necessarily like, there's like, it's something so much bigger, I think. And I think because we don't have the language for it, it's really hard to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense. Like I, I, I just can't imagine the level of stress that also comes from being in a very small minority group. Being raised in the South, I've always been in places that were like 40% Black. And when I was a kid, I couldn't understand why people kept saying minority referring to Black people. And I was like, are you sure? Because like, (laughs) we're everywhere. Um, But then when we traveled as a family when I was a kid and we would go to towns where we wouldn't see anybody, then we were like, oh, okay, now we're getting the full picture. But even recently, I was on another show where a Canadian was interviewing me and I said that the Black population was 30% and I could have sworn it was true. But then when I fact-checked myself, it's 13. But I think in my head, I changed it because I still feel like in my experience, there's so many people around. So I've never experienced the stress of feeling like there's nobody around, you know, or having people count out the Black people. That would never happen in the towns that I've been raised in. So that's a whole nother level of stress the numbers in your ethnic group to be so low and then to have the added complication of maybe you look like you're in the same racial group to people, <laughs> but you're not at all in the same ethnic group mm-hmm. 
So, oh, I can't imagine the stress. Everybody needs therapy, but especially <laughs> marginalized people. Yeah. We need extra therapy. For sure. And I, I didn't recognize the importance of having a therapist of color until my experience with, with that therapist, because I think she was so keen on like diagnosing me with things. And like anytime I would tell her a story like that, like the train, she would just be so surprised every time. And I would have to like break so many other things for her down of like, oh yeah, this happens to Asian people all the time and, and her shock. So it was like, there was like so much that she mm. didn't understand to the point where it was like counterproductive to be in therapy like that. So yeah, I, the, like you said, the value of therapists of color, I think is like enormous. Yes, yes. I When I first started therapy, I went to someone who their specialty or their focus in their studies was marginalized people and their mental health. And so she was never shocked, but it was still different in that because she hadn't lived it, it felt like there was some like distance there. Oh, yeah. That felt difficult to settle into like it didn't feel comfortable or didn't feel cozy it definitely felt like a doctor's appointment but about you know my mental health <laughs> so yeah how did you find a therapist of color that you resonated with because obviously we're not going to love every person of color like that's not how it works <laughs> so how do you find enough options to where you can find your person yeah i actually stopped going to therapy <laughs> <laughs> I lost my school insurance, so, mm. but I have been much more intentional about opening up to my friends who are of color and like being a mutual space for each other to talk about things like that. And that has helped me so much because I think even talking about things like that with people of other minority groups, like black people, for example, and just realizing just all the ways we overlap is very freeing because it's kind of like oh this is like something that a system has made us believe and a culture has indoctrinated in us it's not something that's inherently and in a problem of like a deficiency that why don't i love the way i look you know because i think we're taught to for that to be like a deficiency if you don't love the way you look all the time but how could we when we were taught for so long to hate the way we look so I think understanding that has been super super good for my mental health yeah yeah I really believe that community is such a healing tool especially for folks of color and then understanding the overlaps like you said in the experience because what we're all having is a human reaction to white supremacy culture Mm -hmm. This is how anybody would react if one group of people isolates themselves and positions themselves as the golden standard for humanity and everybody else is like somewhere farther down on this ladder that's been created. The stress that it causes people, the way it makes you turn the stigma in on yourself, this is all just what humans do when you stigmatize them. So, so much of what sometimes we think of as, oh, this is a cultural thing. No, like race isn't even real. But the responses that we have to the whole world saying that race is real, that's 
that's tangible, right? The stress, or maybe even when people will say like, oh, this group of people is so high strung and they're so aggressive. Well, you're seeing how chronically stressed people respond to other uncomfortable situations. And people have been traumatized in the past. When they're traumatized in the present, the reaction is totally different. So I do think there's so much opportunity for healing and community. And we don't see that emphasized by the dominant culture because it's a very individualistic culture and that's not their thing. So sometimes I feel like it's hard for us to even recognize healing tools that the dominant culture doesn't use or respect. Mm -hmm. But you know it from your lived experience of how much better you feel when you spent some time with people who allow you to just be a person. Yeah. And I, I think, I think it's just like, I've just been figuring out how to allow myself to just like be that, that person and not think that I have to excel at everything at all times or else my value is no longer there. Because I think for us, especially people of color, like we have to look for ways to prove that we're worthy or that we have our lives have meaning i think everyone does but i think for us it's it's like constant right it's like even when we we are trying to relax even when we're trying to have a day off there's that constant pressure of like do i have inherent worth if i'm not creating or doing something for others yeah i think that's so real sure and that's such a big big question that i think blocks a lot of us from self-care because how can you take the time to rest? How can you take the time to take care of yourself or dote on yourself if you really feel like the only time you have value is when you're doing something for others? And there's so many ways that lesson has been taught to all of us. So thank you for modeling, especially for other young folks that it is important to prioritize your mental health and take advantage of the resources while you have them, while you're in college, even if they're not great, as long as you're not feeling, sometimes you can be traumatized again in a mental health setting. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not at that level, you know, <laughs> it still can set you on your journey to healing. And you can go back later if you want to, when your finances shift. I mean, we know that you have to make it work. So many times I hear people who are in public health saying like, no, people just have to get these services. We just have to find a way. But we know for a lot of people, not all of these services are accessible. So we have to be open to other ways that we find healing. And sometimes it's just having someone make something click for you that, oh, this is why I think I can't take a day off. Mm -hmm. But you're, everyone is worthy and inherently worthy. And the problem is not with our Blackness, our Asianness, our queerness, our Mexicanness. The problem is with how the dominant culture is abusing people who don't fit the norms that they have elevated as, you know, the bee's knees. There's nothing wrong with our marginalized identities and we shouldn't feel compelled to constantly be working to prove that we're worthy. And one thing that I definitely learned in 2020 was that no matter what you do, you can't maintain your status as a model minority. The minute 
like the wind can blow. And once again, you're this subhuman thing. So putting all that energy into being good and into serving others to prove that you're worthy is a lost cause because it's not stable. And if you have to prove your worthiness to every single person that you meet, again, not stable, not sustainable. So I would encourage everybody to do the work to consider what would your life be like if you believed that you were worthy, Mm. inherently worthy all the time, working, not working, producing good work, producing shitty work. Like what would life be like if you just believe that you had value no matter what? Mm -hmm. Just a completely different experience. Mm Uh, how do we follow you? How do we keep in touch with you? Well, sorry, I'm still processing what you said. It was so profound. <laughs> but um, yeah, so my my TikTok handle is at Ian Kuma, K-U-M-A. Um, that's the best place to follow me. But I also have a Twitter, uh, Ian Kumamoto, K-U-M-A-M-O-T-O. What is the Conrads? And I saw, a, what what is that account? Yeah, so Chaos and Comrades is a small publication that I helped run and that I co-founded for actually Black, Brown, and queer people geared towards just talking about our issues that the mainstream media often ignores. So you can follow that us on Instagram at, at Chaos and Comrades, C-O-M-R-A-D-E-S. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Like so much of, oh my goodness, so much of what you said. I just think it's going to resonate so much with other people. Oh, thank you. I, I really, really, I'm still processing everything we've talked about. <laughs> Honestly, that was so deep. But I, I'm so grateful for you and for this podcast and for everyone that, that is listening to this. So thank you so much. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk to someone who's so transparent about their own journey to self-acceptance and the concept of body dysmorphia from a racial perspective was new to me and was something that sent me down a rabbit hole. It's so fascinating how many of us suffer from the ripple effect of chronic stress related to racism, being otherized, being stigmatized. But depending on when we were born and where we were raised, the likelihood that anyone to date has validated that our symptoms are related to systemic oppression is really low. So I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to have received this information and to be able to share it with others so that we can all be aware that the physical consequences, the health consequences of systemic oppression are real and are treatable. I... I'm sure if you've been in my bubble, you already realize that I have been working on a book that deals with precisely this theme, and it is now available for pre-order. 
please make sure you check out the show notes and order your copy of Decolonizing Wellness. If you get your copy now as a pre-order, you'll get access to a special hidden podcast series in which I'm going to dive a little deeper into each chapter in the book. It's going to be great. You don't want to miss out. Make sure you also check out the show notes today to check out what Ian's doing on TikTok, on IG, and other places. Ian is such a wonderful person, extremely entertaining, and his content is so informative. You will be so thrilled to have access to accurate and interesting information when so many times that isn't the form that we get our news in. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Remember, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others every time you hear something useful. And hopefully that will be every episode. I'll see you next yeah they might try to put you in a box tell them that you don't accept when the world is tripping out tell them that you love yourself hey hey smile on them live your life just how you like it it's your party negativity is not invited for my queer folk my trans people of color let your voice be heard look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first you were born to win head up high with confidence this show is for everyone so i thank you for tuning in let's go